Welcome, welcome to Kingdom in Context. This is our Sabbath fellowship. I'm Sean, and this is my lovely wife, Lindsay. Hey guys, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, sweetie. Shabbat Shalom, babe. As always, thank you for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. I know it's not, uh, you're not always uh, happy to be in front of the camera every <laughs> single day. So I don't really think about it. I don't really care. So I really appreciate you joining me for these. And we thank everyone that's in the live chat already. We thank you for joining us as well. We hope that uh, these are a blessing to you. And our goal with these is to be, it's its more like a, an actual, you know, interactive teaching with the people. Um, it's not a debate. It's not a Q&A right now. We do a Q&A at the end, but not at the beginning. So at the beginning, we just ask that everyone kind of, you know, pay attention for a while. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to clarify because last week I got a little distracted with someone wanting to argue with us in the chat. That's my weakness. Um, but it came to our realization that we never really explained that our purpose for our Shabbat Q&As are basically kind of like church for people who don't have a church to go to on the Sabbath. And so we like to try and keep it orderly <clears throat> and in the spirit of a little bit of a service where when we're reading the scriptures and we're doing the teaching, we would prefer that people not do too much chit chat in the chat, certainly not drop your questions yet. And try to pay attention to the scripture reading and the teaching. And then, of course, we open it up for Q&A at the end. And that's pretty much no holds barred, <laughs> um, yeah. which is something that you don't get at a regular church. Um, so last week when I was pointing out that, you know, most of us wouldn't go into a church service where a pastor is teaching and stand up right in the middle of it and tell that pastor he's wrong and start demanding he answer our questions and wanting to debate him. And that person said to me, well, I didn't realize this was church. And then I realized, well, we've never really set the expectation other than asking people to keep their questions till the end. So I know people are going to talk in the chat. We're not discouraging that. I know this is where you guys like to meet, catch up with each other. And certainly our mods are going to be watching the chat and paying more attention down there. Um, but just so that everyone knows, so it's clear this is different from a lot of Sean's other shows and his debates and things like that, where we would like to kind of keep it in the spirit of somewhat a church service. And we would like that to be applied to everyone's behavior in the chat. So we appreciate you guys. I mean, we don't really have too many issues. So long story short, if you get booted, it's because you're being a distraction <laughs> and you're causing problems and you're not acting like a mature adult. You're yeah. not being able to hold your peace if you yeah. disagree with something that's being said. So just re remember that just because there's a keyboard in front of you doesn't mean that your sense of responsibility goes out the window for how you behave. So thank you guys for being here. Yeah. Yeah. And mods, just so that you know, that is our expectation for the chat during the scripture and teaching part of the uh, show. So if you guys, you know, just be watching out for that kind of thing. If there's someone in the chat who is clearly not paying attention other than looking for things to argue rebuking, all that kind of stuff, um, feel free to use your timeout button. And yeah, everybody is fairly warned. <laughs> Our mods have permission at their discretion to time you out if you're being disorderly in the chat. So uh, one other thing we wanted to point out before we get started, um, we have a, a sister who's in need. Um, um, unfortunately, this week she became a widow. She came home and found her husband um, unresponsive. So a fundraiser has been started for her. He was the sole provider. It's her and her two-year-old daughter left behind. Um, so we do have her fundraiser linked uh, in the description. If you feel led, if you're looking for causes to give to, of course, 
caring for the widows and the orphans is major part of our walk, our call as Christians. So if you're looking for something to help with, um, she could really use our help. So that information is in the description below. Okay, guys. Yeah. So today um, we were actually debated on talking about this last week, <coughs> but we decided to, to wait and talk about this week because yeah. we want to talk about the discipleship and the, and the resurrection last week. So this week we wanted to talk about being slow to anger, being slow to anger. Or in modern terms, um, not going Alex Jones mode. <laughs> For me, it's not getting triggered. I specifically thought of this topic last week because I was in the kitchen. I was getting ready to mill some flour for us for some pancakes. And I was having a real struggle with my mill. And I was recognizing in myself how quickly I get very, very angry with inanimate objects <laughs> that aren't doing what I need them to do. I... I seem to be better with like situations like a, in life with human beings. <laughs> like a mechanic that beats on his engine when he can't get something to work. Yes, on. Yeah. I get very, very frustrated with things. And I didn't, I just, I don't like that about myself. It makes me feel really immature. And so I was telling him last week at breakfast that, you know, I would like to at some point talk about some scriptures about being slow to anger because I need to minister to me <laughs> on this topic and other people, I'm sure. Um, a lot of us struggle with this. So he had already had something in mind for last week. So we went ahead with that. And then we decided to go ahead and do this topic this week. So I did okay this morning. I didn't have any meltdowns with any of my appliances this morning, but yeah. So it's not even just people. Like sometimes I just recognize how frustrated I get with completely inanimate objects. <laughs> well, I think it just boils down to, we, we want things to go our way. Yeah. And be we, easy. We want things to be the, the path of least resistance. I don't know what's going on with our internet today, guys. Um, yeah. we're, we're in like 144 mode right now for whatever reason, even though we're streaming in 1080p. Um, I don't know what's happening here. Like, I, like I've said for years, we pay for the most expensive internet that's offered. It's high speed, super gig, all this stuff. And it's, um, it doesn't even apparently matter. So, um, and we just don't even have for, weather today. Thanks for being patient um, as we try to get through this. Um, I don't know why it's such horrible. It was fine two seconds ago. I know. That's rough. So we wanted to, I'll just go ahead and put this on screen because we want to talk about um, just some of the attributes of our Heavenly Father and, and how he is slow to anger, which I think is pretty awesome um, to me. Put a one in the chat if our audio is good, if you can hear us. We'd really appreciate it. Man, it's being super slow. All right. So Exodus 34, this is when um, Moses is put in the cleft of the rock and Yahweh is passing by to show him his backside. And he's they're speaking the name of the Lord. Um, he calls out and says some stuff, proclaims his authority, his name. And, uh, and he says, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. And I always thought it's interesting because he put um, compassionate first, mm -hmm. put gracious next. Yeah. And then he says slow to anger next. Um, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, <clears throat> maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And one second. Um, sorry, one second. I'm just going to get this. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He will forget. He will visit the iniquity of their fathers and the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
Um, now, without going into a, a breakdown of of him doing judgment, he just he before he announces that he is a God who's just and will judge people, he actually reminds people, "Hey, um, I also <clears throat> am compassionate, yeah, gracious. I don't get angry too quickly, right? And I'm abounding in love and devotion." And faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And this was not guaranteed by the gods of the other ancient pagan nations. Right. This was not something that they got to listen and, and depend on. It was a compassionate, gracious, gracious, loving, forgiving, slow to anger God. Right. Like they were worried about Zeus hitting them with a light bolt, the lightning bolt. Like they were not. They were not thinking. Oh, we've got a super compassionate, slow to anger. Like they're worried about being judged in the underworld and being thrown to demons yeah. in, in the Egyptian mythology. So like this was a unique concept for them to be hearing coming out of Egypt during this time, which is currently unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. So they're coming out of the Passover um, and leaving Egypt, which was this land where they were not allowed to worship Yahweh. And they were only allowed to be oppressed by the Egyptians who worship their gods. And then we see that they started worshiping the Egyptian gods over time. Now, we don't get in scripture, none of the scriptures that we've ever seen, we don't get a specific breakdown on exactly when that happened, but we do see them having a strong desire and resistance to, to changing over and repenting and worshiping Yahweh and trying to maintain worship to Baal, which is um, the Apis bull, which is what was called generically called the golden calf in some translations. And this is a this is a figure that's also referenced as Molech to the Canaanites, which was a, uh, a bull with a the solar disk on this that represented Ra and Anubis. And so this is where the Egyptians, that was their main gods that they worshiped. Right. And the children of Israel had come out of that situation. They're now stepping into the wilderness and Yahweh is trying to teach them. I'm, I'm bringing you out to make a covenant with me to worship me. And I just want to let you know, I am slow to anger. I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I will forgive your iniquity, transgression and sin. And um, I have loving devotion and I'm abounding in it. I want to bless a, a thousand generations with loving devotion. Like he wants to do good for you. Right. And what's so interesting about this is that this statement is being said after they rebelled with the golden calf. Right. So he could have said, I'm going to like he wanted to <laughs> wipe out all these people yeah. and I'll, I'll, I'll state my good graciousness to a different people group. Yeah. Right. But no, no. He says this right then in that moment. When he has all all justification to be as angry as possible, like he was angry because he just made a covenant with them to do good stuff, and then literally within weeks they're doing extremely horrific stuff that yeah. you see outlined in Leviticus eighteen through twenty. Yeah, um, worshiping the Apis bull at the bottom, the Egyptian gods at the bottom of the mountain <clears throat> that they just made a covenant with Yahweh at the bottom of the mountain. Right. So like he has, he's very justified to to. Be very angry with them. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> now this is already a people that he saved because of the faithfulness of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's already taken, in my estimation, about a year for the for the plagues to all happen and them to finally be brought out. And, and that's him being patient with Pharaoh yeah, for the sake of his people and then bringing his people out and, you know, trying to be as patient as possible with them with their, as they're still complaining, murmuring, trying to disobey the Sabbath, trying to, you know, just all these different things that they, they were struggling to really just get it together and be like, okay, even if you had this Egyptian mindset of other gods that you had wor been worshiping for a few generations or just a few decades, 
and then you were switching to a God who just brought you out with all these amazing signs and wonders. You walk through water, like you, you saw the entire army that was oppressing you drown in the sea. So you don't have to worry about them anymore. Um, they, all the people that were oppressing you, the citizens gave you all their gold and silver. So now you're, you're above them in both status and power. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to think about them anymore, but they still didn't let go of this mindset of wanting to worship these false gods. And here's Yeshua, uh, Yahweh just being like, look, I'm super gracious with you, slow to anger. And it, he did not kill them like they deserved because they broke the covenant. Not all of them, but uh, the, the ones that broke the covenant uh, did receive judgment, but the entire lot. So this is what's interesting because we see in Deuteronomy 13, as he's expounding on the covenant, he's like, look, if other people lead you to sin, you're supposed to stop them. Right. If other people will say to you, hey, let's go worship these other gods, which is exactly what happened at the base of Mount Sinai. The rebellious people decided uh, there was 3,000 of them that were judged out of uh, possibly almost 2 million. And in, in the other 1.997 million or whatever, the, the, the mass group of them did not stop the, the 3,000 from engage, forcing Aaron into, into creating the golden calf and engaging in idolatry right in front of them. And that is a part of the law is to like not let that happen amongst your people in your community. And they also were guilty by just letting this run rampant and letting them try to assume authority when it had already been clearly given to Moses and Aaron. So and so this was a huge deal. <laughs> this was not just simply idolatry. It was also mutiny. And the, the a huge majority of people just stood by and let it happen. So this was a disgrace to all of them. And unfortunately, Yahweh had plenty of justification to wipe them all out if he wanted to. But he 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 did a very surgical and targeted judgment on the main perpetrators and showed to the rest of the people who also allowed the covenant to be broke, participated it within their camp. He that, you know, he gave them extreme mercy and showed them love. So I think this is very interesting to me. It's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, we see an example of his him being slow to anger when um, he's talking about is it. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah, where he talks about um, the fullness of their iniquity hasn't mm -hmm. come in yet. Uh, basically, he was saying well, he's he's, some of the, the Amorites. Yeah, he the was Amorites. waiting till a yeah. certain point and then judgment was to come. And that was like 400 years or something. Yeah, he's talking to, to in Genesis. He's talking to Abraham. He's right. like, I'm going to lead you in this land uh, because the fullness of the Amorites is not yet complete. So he was already waiting, even with people that were not had vocally and, and through um, literally raising their hand and had not went into an actual covenant with him through a covenant meal. Um, but the Anamorites, all of, all of creation is expected to abide by his yeah. behavior. This is yeah. exp expressed to us in uh, Ecclesiastes and other places. So this is, you know, the Amorites also, just like the Jonah went to the Ninevites who were not Israel. Yeah. They were a part of Assyria uh, who was part of the Babylonian empire and they were expected to repent and they did actually. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, and there's other pockets throughout time of people that were not Israel, but were in covenant with Yahweh and doing his behavior. Job yeah. is an Edomite and a great example of that. Right. He was an Edomite king. So it's very interesting to see that he is, even with other nations, that we don't get as much detail as we do with the nation of Israel. He's extremely patient with them. Um, I think he's been extremely patient with the United States. Oh, I was just going to say, really, since the time of the flood, all the way till the time Yeshua comes back, he's being extremely yeah. patient and long-suffering and slow to anger. And even all of us can say in our own individual lives, he's been slow to anger yeah. with us and long suffering because, I mean, I know, I, I mean, not everybody has the same story as me where you were just out in outright rebellion until you came to him. But I mean, I, he showed me so much mercy because I was one of those 
new agers who went around, you know, mocking his word and, uh, you know, telling Christians they were basically dumb, ignorant fools for believing this book was the word of God. And he, you know, he kept me alive through some really uh, bad nights that I should have died with my drinking and things like that. And, uh, and to bring me to where I am today. And I look back, I'm like, wow, he, he was very patient with me. It was, <laughs> it was, he's very patient. <laughs> so we have another, um, another opportunity here in the book of Proverbs where it talks about anger as well. And then here in verse 29, it says a patient man has great understanding, but a quick tempered man promotes folly. What do you think about that when you read that? Uh, well, I honestly, I think of you when I read that, when I think of a patient man has great understanding. <laughs> really? Yes. I mean, anyone who watched your debate last night can see not only are you incredibly patient, but you have great understanding. So I don't know, it just maybe I'm just praising my husband because I'm biased, but it just makes me think of you. <laughs> okay. But also just. I think of all the people I've known in my life who have a quick temper and how much folly and chaos comes with people like that. You know, yeah. how much, how so many bad decisions are made in anger, decisions that can't be reversed a lot of the times. Um, I, I don't know how many of you guys know this, but I've always been into true crime shows, um, certain kinds of true crime shows. Like I like Dateline and 48 Hours, like the news style ones. Um, but those are always a great example of what happens in, you know, a moment of anger and some things that just can never be undone yeah. and things that people have to live with their whole lives. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a, a deep uh, understanding, a deep meaning there um, as far as a quick tempered man promoting folly. Well, yeah, um, <clears throat> I guess. Some people have asked, you know, how are you so patient with circumstances like that? And uh, part of me is it's because, or at least the way I view it, is because um, it's it's strategy, if I could put it like that. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't react too much um, because even if you strongly disagree with what's being said, um, some people use your reactions as fuel for them to, to misbehave even further. Yeah. And so um, it's my strategy is to create peace as much as possible. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I, I feel like if I ever get to the point where I'm having to ask someone to, to control themselves, I've already lost the, the battle for peace. You know what I'm saying? Because, um, that's like a last ditch effort for if they've not picked up on my cues that I'm not returning their energy or I'm not returning insult or that I'm not returning, um, their cattiness or whatever, you know, then I have to actually verbally say, you know, Hey man, I need you to control yourself or let's, let's bring it down some they rarely respond to that but it's like my last ditch effort like it has to be said out loud yeah you know and so maybe it'll kind of jar them awake in some you know small percentage of people but i i feel like at that point i kind of already have lost the the opportunity for a peaceful discourse uh, amongst disagreement but you know it's just just keep trying you keep trying I'll try to get better at it i, I wouldn't i would never put it on you for losing that particular struggle because it's typically because that other person is already so triggered and immature. In my opinion, they're not capable of even recognizing your cues that you are not matching their energy. And some people are even triggered when you don't match their energy. They That's don't true. like that. You don't return 
an insult or you don't get offended or you don't defend yourself against their false accusations. So I don't know. I wouldn't put it so much on you failing anything there. I think anytime someone is so angry and triggered that they can't pick up on your cues, they're the ones who have failed. And people are asking for a link to the, um, so the next verse we want to look at is James chapter one. And uh, this is, you know, um, the apostle James, half brother of Yeshua. And he's going in to express uh, his teaching in his, in his epistle letter. Verse 19 in the first chapter he says, my beloved brothers understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to anger and slow, or excuse me, slow to speak and slow to anger for man's anger does not bring about the right behavior that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and every expression of evil. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save your soul. Now, you know that um, there's a there's a parallel passage that comes to mind in Ephesians where Paul is quoting from uh, the Septuagint, and he talks about you know in your anger do not sin. Uh, when this do not let your anger um, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and Yeshua talks about in your anger, do not sin. And so here we have James also expressing that man's anger does not bring about the right behavior that God desires. Mm -hmm. Right. So the father, it seems as if we understand anger is a natural reaction to things that are going wrong. It just seems to be how you behave once you become angry. Yes. That's really the, the thing, right? Because yeah. we see examples of Yahweh becoming angry. Yeah. <clears throat> righteously and, angry and he's justified to be angry. Mm -hmm. And then his reaction is, seems to be, he could be justified in taking judgment, but he seems to filter it all through this incredible amount of patience yeah. and long suffering and compassion. And it's, it's his reaction to being angry is um, stalled if, because he's slow. Not only is he slow to anger, but he's slow to act once he is angry. Right. Because he he wants people to live as much as possible. Yeah, well, <laughs> he doesn't want to. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but that all should be saved. Yeah, and actually, Yeshua exhibited that same kind of patience with his righteous anger. Because this is something a lot of people don't notice, but in the scene in the New Testament where he takes the whip into the temple, everybody knows about him taking the whip into the temple and knocking the tables over. A lot of people seem to not notice the part that talks about him sitting down and braiding that whip. So he sat down and made that whip first and he had to sit and he had to think about what he was about to do. And he seems like he stayed calm while he was doing that. And then he went in and kicked butt and took names. <laughs> so even in that situation where a lot of people like to use that particular even unbelievers like to use that verse. Oh, what would Jesus do? Well, remind people that flipping tables is one option. He didn't just go in there and start flipping tables willy-nilly. He sat down and he made that whip yeah. first before he went in there. So he thought about what he was going to do. So even in that situation, um, he's he's exhibiting that example for us of the father's behavior of being yeah. slow to anger. Yeah, and, that, and this is at the same time that um, he had been in this temple for years throughout mm -hmm. his whole life, right. watching these things happen, seeing it with his own eyes and every then day. He finally was like, all right, even in my attempt to reprimand them verbally. Now I'm pretty sure that they put these changing tables right back up when he left. Sure. Yeah. But at the same time, like he made a show of this to demonstrate their unrighteousness in the temple and how they were defiling the temple in, in this way, making it a marketplace that was <coughs> not 
regulated by the priests, but was a regular marketplace for all other peoples. Right. That's not what the house of God was designed for. And so, yeah, he takes the time to, to make sit, you know, sit, stand, whatever. He takes the time to make yeah. a whip. And that, that's not something that he just grabbed a, grabbed a single rope, right? It's cords you tie together yeah. in a certain fashion. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, it's very interesting that he, he, um, even in his judgment, he was very intentional yes and uh <laughs> dedicated to what he was about to do and self-controlled it wasn't like he just started flipping tables exactly you know yeah. what i mean we see that in some recreations some uh movies been made recently where they see him walking through the temple just visibly getting flustered and then he just starts throwing flipping yeah. tables. but that's not that's, that's not what happened that's why I've, well, I've pointed this verse out to people because a lot of people don't don't notice it's there. I mean, how many times can you read a passage in the scriptures and not notice something? And then the one day, oh, boom, this stands out at you. And yeah, part of that is because a lot of these movies that have depicted that moment are memes even. Yeah. It's just a random outburst from him. But we see here in the scriptures, Yeshua doesn't do the random outbursts. Yeah, yeah he, he doesn't. He's controlled even in Zinger. Yep. Um, and similarly, I always love the part in Garden of Gethsemane, also in the book of John where um, they come to apprehend him and he says, you know, they are you Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I am. And the whole group of soldiers fall down. Yeah. You know, and that's just like a small dose, just a small dose of him going super Saiyan if you wanted to. <laughs> and then, but he's still knowing that he had to control himself because he knew this was what was happening and he right. knew he had to be apprehended and betrayed and crucified. So like, it's, Controlled, controlled, even though he had the power to walk away and not let them apprehend them, just like he exemplified in Luke chapter four in Nazareth. So it's very interesting to see that kind of um, meekness is what yes. I've always heard that described as is yeah. power under control is called meekness. Now, what do we see Jesus teach us in Matthew five, that the meek will inherit the earth. Right. So the outbursting, angry, <sighs> the anger that produces the fruit of unrighteousness, will that inherit the earth or yeah. is it the meek? that will inherit the earth, right? It's very interesting. Yeah. All right. So we also have uh, Psalm 86 we wanted to look at. And this is the psalmist uh, giving us a their take as well on anger in verse 15. It says, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. Yeah. So he's kind of repeating what we see from Exodus 34. And then he's also praying, please turn to me and have mercy. Grant your strength to your servant, the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your goodness. Yeah. So this is him, you know, praying that, that your enemies may see and be ashamed for you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. So he's also an exemplification of what, what Yeshua taught in Matthew uh, 5 about let your light shine before men. They may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Right. In the same regard, that's the way the Father acts because of his abounding love and faithfulness and devotion, <laughs> slow to anger, compassion. He can then do good to servants instead of just being vindictful, spiteful, and then right. judging them erroneously, yeah. he can actually take the time and be diligent to work and mold that disciple, do good to them, and then people around are watching them. And this is why I believe in the New Testament, it's one of the, uh, how do I say this, one of the practical outflows of the process of why we can see that statement in the New Testament that says that it's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. Yeah. Because they can see what's happening with someone else's life and they can, it really starts to dig into their cognitive dissonance, the lies they've been told, their own mistrust uh, for a heavenly father. And they can start to see, well, you know, hey, he really blessed this person's life. They're giving all credit to God. Right. Their behavior is changing for the better. They're making a change and it starts to, to really affect people. Right. So it's a, 
It's a great testimony. Yeah. And if you think about it, there's such a stark contrast in the false gods in the world. Um, I can remember learning Greek mythology in seventh grade, sixth grade, and always thinking to myself how petty the gods in those myth mythological stories were to each other, to mankind, yeah. how angry they were. How un unrighteous sexually. How Oh yeah, all yeah. the all the R word going on with yeah. gods coming down and R wording human all the, women. All the grapes without the G. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And also, if you think about a lot of their sacrificial systems, it was to appease their gods. It, it was. was to uh, get their gods to not be so angry with them. Whereas we have sacrifices in our law that are peace offerings and Thanksgiving mm -hmm. and just family wow. meals, vow offerings. Yeah. Um, you know, and even the sin and guilt offerings don't come with this heaviness, this heaviness feeling of an unhealthy kind of fear from an irrational right. God. Now, unfortunately, people will use things like Leviticus chapter nine with Nadab and Abihu mm -hmm. yeah. who, were, who were drunk yeah. and disrespecting Yahweh by showing up drunk and doing something that they were already told not to do by offering the wrong ingredients for this. Mm -hmm. And so there was judgment and they'll take that judgment and they'll say, well, see, look. You know, he, we do have to fear God striking us down. Right. And you're like, well, look at all of the people that constantly sinned and came forward to the temple with yeah. their sacrifices for thousands of years. Yeah. And there was atonement, restitu restitution and, and fellowship created. It wasn't him going, I'm not accepting your sacrifice and boom. Well, you know what I'm saying? Plus. If, they, if their heart was right. It also wasn't. People weren't bringing their guilt and sin offerings under this uh, threat of immediate destruction if they don't. Um, they had many, many, were, I'll exp yes, they had many hundreds of years to rebel before judgment was taken out. On them. Well, and plus a lot of sins listed in the scriptures didn't call for the death penalty anyways. That's right. Uh, that's a big misconception, both in mainstream Christianity and the Torah crowd that all sin meant death penalty in this life. All sin means second death. Right. But all sin in the Torah was not that, uh, didn't bring capital punishment. So just in comparison to these other gods where, you know, they really felt that their gods were going to destroy them if they sure. didn't bring their sacrifices. We don't have that same kind of dynamic with our father. We have a healthy fear of him and he's also a rational God and he has anger for rational, righteous reasons. Right. And then these other false gods just seem very immature, really yes. <laughs> very quick to anger <laughs> as well as, they were not faithful in their devotion to people that serve them. And yeah. So this is why Yahweh is telling us over and over again <coughs> that he's abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness. Right. Because you did not know if Zeus was going to turn on you. Right. You see that in their own stories of their own gods interacting, yep. how they constantly warred with each other. They turned on each other. Even if someone was trying to be faithful to them, they, their faithfulness was not always rewarded with returned faithfulness and loving devotion that right. God could turn on them. Yeah. And so this is where Yahweh's trying to remind these folks like, Hey, I I'm not like that. Yeah. I'm slow to anger. If you do good to me, I'm going to do good to you and your children's children, children, children. Like I'm going to love you forever. Like he's proven it to the people coming out of the Exodus by this promise being proven from the goodness that he wants to show Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they lovingly, were faithful to him their entire lives. And he in turn is like, I'm going to bless your descendants, descendants, descendants. Yeah. <laughs> because of your loving to faithfulness. And this is what he tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 15. Right. He tries to remind them because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm bringing you out to show my faithfulness, my love to you. 
And this is something that you never got promised from these other gods, right? Uh, these false gods. So thank you, uh, Nikolai Lanier, for your super chat. He's like, yes, we're going to get to questions in a minute, brother. I really appreciate yeah. your super chat. We and do Q&A towards the end. We try to leave, not have questions in the yeah. chat while we're doing the teaching. Yeah. And then we'll open it up for questions towards the end. So, all right. So we got a few more we want to look at real quick. And Proverbs 15 is another one. There's a quick little passage. Okay. Verse 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger calms disputes. All right. So hot-tempered man stirs up strife. He who is slow to anger calms disputes. Yeah. This reminds me of what Yeshua talked about. He's like, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes. Right? Yeah. They'll be called sons of God. Right. Which means you're going to get to the resurrection. Right. That's the, that's what that terminology means, to be called a son of God. And yes, ladies, it applies to you too. Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's the idea, is that you're, and, but in, in even more technical fashion, the idea that the promise of that terminology, to be called a son of God, was also that um, you're going to become a direct creation of the father and not born through another woman's womb. Right. Right. So you're, you'll be raised by the power of the Holy Spirit in an incorruptible body as a direct creation of the father. So it's very powerful, very wonderful, wonderful. And here is the first step in that process, which is if you're slow to anger, you're, you're also actively looking to calm disputes. Yes. Right. So it's you're trying to be a peacemaker. You're not trying to choose sides because that's part of the strife. Right. You're trying to be a peacemaker. Right. Yeah. And how much of this do we see today with cell phones and social media where people will be fighting in public in the subway and the bars and so many people around them, instead of stepping in to stop the dispute, stop the fight, they whip out their cell phones to film it. Right. And world star, you know, and, right. and to upload it and get views. And and so and I'm guilty of, you know, scrolling through and stopping and watching some of those videos myself. But I think to myself, why isn't anybody stopping this? Why are they just letting these people fight? Why are they just letting that woman scream at that uh, fast food worker, you know, yeah. for no reason? Why, you know, it's, it's well, a now, very. Yeah. It, there's an escalation, obviously. So yeah. if you can calm it down, that's one thing. But then if violence happens, then it's your job to protect the innocent. Right. Right. So then you got to, you kind of do have to choose sides at that point. You have to make some sort of judgment call on who's the aggressor and what's going on here, especially if it's an oppression uh, type of aggression out of anger and not some, you know, you know, it's not someone trying to get back their iPhone that was stolen because yeah. there's a thief and then there has to be judgment involved. And, you know, but like things you're talking about, it's usually just one person oppressing another and a whole group of people pull out their phones as opposed right. to stepping in and stopping it. It's actually that was the the series finale of Seinfeld back in 1998. That's right. They got put in jail. <laughs> I think they were in like right. Rhode Island or something. They got put in jail because they watched a mugging and did not stop right. it. Right. And the policeman was like, we've got a good Samaritan law here. If you don't get involved mm. and stop this, you're guilty too. Yeah. And so they were sitting in jail at the I last. I forgot about that. It was a very, I never episode. really watched Seinfeld, but I remember everybody being so upset about that. The very last episode, they were all just in the jail cell yeah. and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely a weird season series finale. That's for sure. But yeah, it's, I, someone makes a good point in the chat. Men are being afraid of, are, are afraid of being sued or arrested. Yeah. Now, as far as just stepping in, and stopping a physical fight. I feel like the men in our society, that is part of their duty as men in our society is to step in and stop a fight and stopping a fight. I don't think is something that can get you sued or arrested. If you're not getting into the fight and throwing punches to stop yeah. it. I mean, you don't have to get violent with people to stop them from fighting. Um, but I, you know, I, 
I think that's our duty as bystanders when we see things like this happening. Um, and it's hard in this world. I mean, a lot of us don't want to get involved in other people's drama, as we would call it. I'm, I mean, I'm very uncomfortable with confrontation, you know, so I have yet to come across a situation where I needed to step into something like that. I don't know how bold I would be able to be in yeah. some kind of a situation if someone's verbally abusing a, a customer service worker in front of me or things like that. You know, I, I don't know how bold I would be in that situation. I would hope that the father would put his boldness into me at the time that it's needed. But, but we're definitely in a culture today where the tendency is not to step in. The tendency is to record and hope that it goes viral. That's so several years ago, um, I was probably 22, maybe. And um, there was um, the, the person that I was with at the time that <coughs> we're coming out of my apartment. And I just told her, um, I was like, hey, you know, I'm going to walk you down to your car. And in the future, if you come over and you call me because I didn't live in a good apartment complex at the yeah. time. Right. Yeah. I was like, in the future, call me. I'll come out to your car and walk you in. You know what I mean? And vice versa. I'll walk you out. And she was like, you know, trying to get pushback. Like, oh, you don't need to do that. It's no big deal. And, you know, so literally the night that I'm telling her this, walk her down to her car. She gets into her car and shuts the door. And in some apartment nearby spills out this guy and girl fighting. And the girl is like, he's, he's like, she's trying to get away from, I say fighting, but like, you know, she's, she's screaming at him and then trying to get away and, and running and he's holding her. And, and hitting her and then holding her again and then like rips part of her shirts. And then, and so I'm, this is all happening like a split second over there. They spill towards me. They don't, they don't see me standing there cause it's dark. It's, you know, yeah. like, like 11 or whatever. And I'm standing in between these cars and they probably can't see me. And then I immediately like run over between the cars in the parking lot. Cause they're going into the parking lot with their behavior, with their actions. And, uh, and I just, I come around the other side of this uh, suburban type vehicle and I just shot at the guy, you know, let her go. You know, what are you doing? And then he immediately stops and raises up and turns around, looks at me and she runs as fast as she can into the, into the night. Yeah. Just down the, down the parking lot of the, of the apartment complex. Never saw her again. And he just stares at me and I stare at him and I was like, you're not going to touch her. And I, I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Right? All I knew was it wasn't good. She was trying to get away from him. That was obvious. Yeah. He was trying to, he not only did he hit her, but he was trying to hold her. He ripped her clothes. So he was, he was clearly being violent with her. Yeah. Um, so my other friend comes out of my apartment because he hears the ruckus and he's, he comes up behind me. He's like, why didn't you wail on that dude? And I was like, well, he stopped. He stopped. Right. He didn't go after her. He didn't attack me. Yeah. She got away. I can't, I can't moderate their entire yeah. life. Yeah. You know what I mean? I stopped the physical moment in his tracks because he heard. There's a dude right behind him yeah. with a really deep voice screaming at him. Yeah. So, because I put on my deep voice at that time, you know what I'm saying? I had to, I had to throw, I had to throw in some put, say it with your chest, you know. I, mean? I had to do a little bit of that. <laughs> and um, but he definitely stopped, and he realized that I was going to do something had he continued to go after her. Yeah. But my other friend was all like, "Dude, why didn't you just wail on that dude?" And I'm like, "Because that's not like that. Didn't call for that. Yeah. Whatever was happening got stopped, and that was enough. She got away. He stopped. He went back into his apartment." You know, I can't be their policeman to, to guard every single decision yeah. or sit down and interrogate them and ask them what, who started this and what's going on. Yeah, and, we can't do vigilante you know I mean? stuff. Yeah. Now, one other thing to think about, actually, that that brought to my mind is um, I have seen social experiments where they'll go out with a hidden camera and they'll show a man hitting a woman in public and how everybody will stop what they're doing and come. They'll start beating the man up. They'll 
pull him. They'll citizens arrest him. Then they'll switch it and they'll have a woman hitting her man in public and right. nobody does a thing. Nobody says a word. Nobody stops. Nobody even really stops to film. They just keep, they all keep walking. Some people yeah. stop and laugh. So that's one thing that I would like to encourage people to think about is that the statistics for men being abused in their relationships physically by their women exist. And it um, it's something that there's a, such a stigma to it. Nobody talks about it. And even in public, when it's happening right in front of people's faces, they completely ignore it or think it's funny. So that's something also to remember um, that we shouldn't be normalizing women hitting men. Like I see right. a lot of that in TV shows and it's comedy. And, but to me, I think to myself, that, that woman's a domestic abuser. <laughs> she's, she's an abuser. <laughs> yeah, She's definitely not, uh, her anger is not being justified. The reaction to whatever frustration she's yeah. feeling, whatever anger with that man, it's not justified to behave like that. Right. And even if she's the weaker vessel and even yeah. if he's got a hundred pounds on her and muscle or whatever, it's still, you know, yeah. because what are you doing? Like, if you if you poke the bear, what are you doing? In my opinion, I'm not I'm not justifying any man's reaction. I'm just saying you're asking for violence when you put violence towards any other person. Yeah, no I don't think I don't think women have a right to hit men and then turn around and be angry if they get hit back. Right. Because that's just not it's it's not it's not right. It's hypocrisy. What is, is it? Exodus 21 or 22 where you have the the. um Yahweh has to tell the women if two men are fighting, don't try to go attack one of the other men. Yes. Because, yeah. and there's a specific way they're told not yeah. to attack them, <laughs> which is very wild. It's like telling women, do not go grab the, the, the gonads of that other dude yeah. um, while two men are fighting. And you're like, what in the world? <laughs> like, this is a thing so much so that Yahweh had to put in his law. It's like, women, do not attack the most vulnerable spot on a man. Yeah. And he's already trying to defend himself from another man. Right. Like, that is just, you know. That's the abuse of the situation through anger that's uncontrolled, unbridled, and you could literally stop him from having children. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's just like, it's crazy. Yeah. Domestic violence is not just a women's issue. It's a men's issue as well. But um, in our uh, overly feminist uh, country, right. that is really not ever talked about. Uh, Carl, thank you for the super chat. I really appreciate that, brother. That's awesome. Thank you, brother. Um, so, yeah, that's. That was our idea for Proverbs, but we have one last verse we want to look at here in, <coughs> this is in Sirach. This is also called Ecclesiasticus, right? Yep. Okay. <coughs> so this is here in Sirach chapter one. And I, I believe this was like a verse, I forgot to put the- 22, this verse, 22 through 24. 21 through 24, technically. Okay. The fear of the Lord drives away sins. Where it abides, it turns back all anger. Unjust anger can never be justified. Anger pulls a person to utter ruin. Until the right time, the patient remain calm. Then cheerfulness comes back to them. Until the right time, they hold back their words. Then the lips of many will tell of their good sins. So this is a wonderfully stated passage yeah. to me. The fear of the Lord drives away sins. Okay, cool. Sounds generic, but then you and he starts expounding. Right. Where it where it abides, that means the fear of the Lord. It turns back all anger. Unjust anger can never be justified. So I love how it kind of specifically explains unjust anger yeah. can never be justified. Um, anger pulls a person to utter ruin. Mm -hmm. And so this is where you can truly mess up relationships, job opportunities, yeah. um, long-term family issues. Like you can, you know, you're out of control anger. It can truly ruin your life. It truly can. Yeah. Um, 
so until the right time, the patient remained calm, then chillfulness comes back to them. So I don't think this is saying that they remain calm and then cheerfulness just comes back. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's talking about judgment. Personally, it's like until the right time, the patient mm -hmm. remained calm. You would then have judgment. And then afterwards, after you sell it or you seek peace, but you have to wait, the patient remained calm. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're assessing the situation. You're making sure that um, you're justly or righteously judging the situation to create peace. Like we read about earlier. Um, and that's, you know, until the right time, the patient remained calm. So that means you're not remaining calm at the right time. You may have to be forceful. Like we see Yeshua. Yeah. Right. Like in, in John two in the temple, he makes the cords. He starts whipping people <laughs> yeah. and uh, until the right time, he remained calm. Mm -hmm. So that's, he knew the right time was to not be calm. I'm now going to, but did it say that he actually whipped people to death or that he then was being accused of um, severely injuring someone because he started whipping them and flaying them open? Because you can literally kill someone with a whip. Yeah. Like you can, you yeah. can fillet them open to death. I mean, he got whipped to death, right? Yeah. Like 39, 39 whips, right? So yeah. like their whipping was a thing. Mm -hmm. It could be an actual act of violence with a true weapon. Uh, you can put someone's eyes out in a heartbeat. There's a story. There's a famous story. And well, I can't tell that. Long story <laughs> short is it's about locker room. People whipping each other with towels in the locker room. Yeah, um, tell that. Long story short, you can seriously injure someone for life by whipping them. And um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, but Yeshua did not. We don't see that Yeshua did that to anybody. Right. I'm, gu I'm guessing he's just scattering them and whipping, yeah. whipping them out, out to get them, scare them to get them out of there. But that could be seen as an act of violence. Like if you don't know what's happening, you're just seeing that from afar because you're just walking into the temple and yeah. you, you see people scattering and yeah. you see like, isn't that the guy that was healing people yesterday? <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, get out of here like he's Indiana Jones. So like it's it's a pretty interesting thoughts to be thinking yeah. of like, what is what in the world? But that was the right time. Mm -hmm. He waited. He was extremely calm. Yeah. <laughs> Probably walked around and looked around. I was like, what is going on with these people? Let me just, uh, I got an idea. He's, give me some rope. You think he went and bought rope from somebody in there? Probably not, right? I, I don't know. He's like, can I borrow your rope, please? And they're like, what? Well, sure. You're, you're asking so nicely. Um, and then he just starts whipping them. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, thank you, Vern Mirat. I appreciate the super chat. Thank you so much. So it's very interesting to see that um, there will be there will be a time where even as, as you're justified and you're a patient person that you have to step up and do something. Right. But it, you're assured that, you know, your cheerfulness and you can if you can create peace or resolve the situation and at the right time, uh, cheer, cheerfulness will come back in the situation because you've created peace as opposed to furthering strife or allowing oppression to continue. Yeah. Um, but and also not just actions, but also it says until the right time, they hold back their words. Right. So yes. Yeah. That's also something um, I was trying to do that last night. Like I was just <laughs> saying earlier, when all those types of situations, you know, I, I feel like it's the last resort for me to have to be so uh, publicly to, to potentially publicly embarrass someone by saying, brother, you've got to control yourself. Like this is just way too far. I mean, I mean, I would say they're already embarrassing themselves, but I understand where you're coming from in your approach and how yeah. you as an opponent, opponent try to deal with those things. Um, one thing that this all makes me think about is the difference between the two sides of my family the stark difference. I have one side of the family that was all very devout Christian and they really lived out their faith, still do. 
And I never saw any anger on that side of my family. I never heard any stories about my grandparents being angry. I only ever heard good things, especially about my Nana and her mothering of my father and his four brothers. On my mother's side of the family, it seems like anger is something that runs on that side of the family and is a serious generational curse among them. And I think it stems from my grandfather. Um, but they... There was there's all kinds of anger on that side of the family, all kinds of drama. There was always one aunt fighting with another aunt or fighting with my mother or all three of them weren't talking to my uncle. I mean, to this day, there are people who don't speak to each other whatsoever. They pretend like the other ones are dead because of things that they've said to each other in anger. And actually, my uncle talked to me a long time ago about his addiction to anger okay, and how it was something that he actually would get an adrenaline rush from being angry. Interesting. And so he would find himself, he's had to work on it through lots of prayer. He's definitely calmed down a lot in the last 10 years. Um, but, and I never really got to experience, thankfully, any of his anger. He was always really good around us kids, but I heard about his anger and his outbursts and fights he would get in with employers. And I just have watched anger completely destroy lives on one side of my family and how it's kept, kept some people from holding jobs, definitely kept us from remaining a family. Um, and it's, it's interesting to think about. I don't think I got that gene. I tend to, like I was saying earlier, my anger really tends to be directed towards things out of my control involving objects and situations. I am not the type to have outbursts at work. I was always mm -hmm. one of the kids in my family who I had a job by the time I was 12, I was delivering papers and then I was working at McDonald's by the time I was 14 and I was able to just shut up, go to work and put my little mask on and get my paycheck. But I had two siblings who their anger kept them constantly from having jobs. They would get jobs and quit within two weeks because they freaked out on their boss. Yeah. So <clears throat> anger isn't just something that, we experience, you know, just in a moment, you know, um, with people situationally. I mean, it can be something that is a trait within ourselves that is a plague on our soul and causes all kinds of issues um, in our families, with our friends, with our work, with school. So, yeah, it's just something to think about. Um, for me, I really just need to work on my patience when something's not going right in, in the household. <laughs> Yeah, th this reminds me of a moment in my life when I was a, <coughs> I was my mid twenties at some point, um, and yeah, it was this is oh no, this was after I lost uh, that new bill came and I lost my position with the uh, working with the with the teachers and and mm -hmm. doing the investment planning, and um and I I went to work at a restaurant temporarily while I tried to recoup and figure things out, and here I am at twenty eight, um, and I'm also going through a divorce at the exact same time. And so I'm not doing well, right? Yeah. I'm not in my right head most days. Yeah. Uh, lots of sadness, lots of depression. And I'm trying to still, you know, work hard and do what's right to, you know, I've got bills to pay, obviously. And, but I just think about the idea of remaining patient and calm until the right time, as Sirach is talking about, because there was this kid that worked at this restaurant who was much younger than me. He's like 20 or 21. And he was just, um, he had a physical deformity of his face when he was born and he had multiple surgeries. And so um, he was some, some people would make fun of him. I never made fun of him, but um, he was just extremely mature and acted kind of like a troll to try to get attention. Yeah. Right. Because he, 
It's probably a defense mechanism. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of saw it as like, Oh, he just wants attention. So that's why he's always like acting, even though he was, um, he was like probably 50 pounds lighter than me and no physical coordination whatsoever. So like, I just kind of brushed him off as like, Oh, you know, that's just him. Yeah. I'm saying like, just, I just let it go. He's just being a little kid. And, but one day we're in the back and we're rolling silverware and he pulls out a steak knife and puts it to my neck. So for months I've been patient with all his little antics and everything, but this moment was, was this way beyond the line for me. Yeah. Right. Cause I, I mean, literally felt the blade in my neck. So I've taken more swords for a long time Yeah. and that kicked in and like reflexes. a heartbeat. And I had this dude in a wrist lock knife went flying, slamming to the ground. He immediately starts crying and asking me not to beat him. And other everyone, like the majority of people did not see him put the only one other person saw him walk up and put this to my neck. Yeah. And, um, and the majority of other people didn't see that. They just saw him and his feet flying in the air yeah. and slamming to the ground. And they thought I was the aggressor. Yeah. And I, and they're like, Oh, he's picking on that guy. Like how dare he? And I'm sitting there and, and thankfully someone else saw and they're like, no, 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 no. He put a knife to Sean's neck. And, um, and like, but it was just in that quick moments. Of course, I didn't. I didn't actually hit him because the knife flew away. I threw him yeah. the ground. He instantly is begging yeah. for me not to hit him um, because he had multiple surgeries on his face. Yeah. Right. And I'm not gonna like. And he was struggling to look normal already. And I'm not gonna beat the dude's face. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Um, so, but at the same time, you you can't put a knife to my yeah. Neck. Like <laughs> in some other countries, you'd already be dead. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I just. So it was one of those moments where I was being extremely patient and calm with the kid. And then this was, but then a life threatening thing came up um, because it literally, it would just been a quick moment. He could have opened my neck up. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I was, that's not, I couldn't let that happen. Yeah. That's right? not a way you play around. So, it sounds like also though, in that situation itself, you were still exhibiting self-control. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that's part of your, uh, part of the training you had in martial arts yeah. is, you know, you know how to, Defend yourself without necessarily severely injuring the other person. If, if you're going to a legitimate martial arts place, they're going to teach you that self-control. You have to exhibit self-control to get to the higher ranks. Yeah. They, they will not promote you if you're out of control. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got to. So, anyway, it's just that reminded me of that, uh, that little kid. And I'm glad I didn't hurt him. But after that, he never talked to me. He stayed away from me. <laughs> and uh, he didn't. He he's stopped trying to troll me and mess yeah. with me and stuff, you know. And, yeah, he was extremely afraid. And um, yeah, it was interesting how the dynamic changed. Uh, we'll take questions now. If yeah. you guys have any questions, put them in all capitalization. Uh, we already had a few come through, but now's the time. Put your questions in all caps, and that way we can see them. The moderators can see them. Um, gentleman earlier was asking about Romans 14. We actually addressed this last week specifically with an entire, at the very end of last week's Q&A. So I'm going to give you the short answer this week. Uh, Nikolai, but go to last week on April 1st, go to the end of that one where we answer. It's like the last question, I think. And, uh, on Romans 14 and, um, our Romans, the wholeness of Romans 14. Yeah. And we try to explain them. It's the whole concept is about fasting, uh, and the disagreements in the first century about who's fasting on which day, because we don't see any command in the scriptures for a specific day of the week to fast. And so they were regularly practicing fasting. Um, and different groups were arguing about which day that was. Yeah. So many modern day dispensation Protestant theologies come through and they say, oh, well, that must be talking about feast days. It's yeah. not talking about feast days at all. It's directly because the feast days were already told you exactly what days those were, yeah. as well as the weekly Sabbath. It's already exact. You know exactly what day. There is no argumentation on which day 
someone values one day more special than another. No, no. Yahweh told us the feast days and the Sabbath days, what days those are and how he views those. It's not up to the opinion of a man determining. That's not what the context is of Romans 14 at all. It's about, you know, what they were fasting over and which days they were choosing as different sects of people. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. Yeah, the father does favor certain days over others, and he, he tells does. us which ones those are. <laughs> he really does. All right, so we've got a couple of questions coming in. Um, Dia is asking, did the people of Israel hear the actual voice of the father at Mount Sinai? Uh, very likely. I mean, it, it sounds like they did because like it did. totally freaked them out. And they were like, please, no more, no more. <laughs> yeah, the lightning, the thunder, uh, you know, <clears throat> the, the shaking, uh, you know, it seems, seems possible. Yeah, it seems very possible. All right. Miriam is asking, what's the role of the women in the kingdom? Well, what what role do you see in uh, in the kingdom of ancient Israel when they were actually faithful to Yahweh? And you had um, women that were judges. You had women that were prophetesses. Uh, you had women that were a part of helping with the temple for different things. Um, you even see that all the way up into the New Testament, Luke chapter 2 with, uh, with Anna, uh, prophetess. And so th that's someone that knows the law of God, can teach others, as well as help with administrational duties, um, any types of maintenance duties, any types of you know legislation, and as well as even they can be become an elder who judges disputes and matters from the law um, as well. So there's a lot of roles. Now, specifically, I think just for the men is delegated the idea of bringing forth the holy gifts to the father in the priesthood capacity. But there's lots of other ways to serve the father in his kingdom. Um, yeah. And don't forget, we're going to get to be stewards of the earth again, too. So aside from everything that goes on in the temple itself, there's going to be all kinds of, I would assume, gardens and animals to care for. You know, there's going to be also we're going to be teaching mortals the law. So, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll be teaching the, the women of the mortals and the children of the mortals um, how to be godly women and godly children, you know, and how to submit properly to their husbands and how to be, uh, meek and humble. So, yeah, I would also say, you know, look at any homestead or ranch, you know, and what does a woman do on a homestead or a ranch? She's part of taking care of the animals, you know, collecting the eggs from the chickens, bringing out the feed, bringing out the water. Like there's going to be a lot of things to take care of in the kingdom and we'll be part of that. Here's one, since you mentioned uh, the gardens. Here in, in um, Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 18 and 19, the remainder of the length bordering the holy portion and running adjacent to it will be 10,000 cubits on the east side, 10,000 cubits on the west side. It will Its produce will supply food mm -hmm. for the workers of the city. Yep. The workers of the city will culti who cultivate it will come from all the tribes of Israel. Oh, yeah, and there's going to be big dining halls. So all around, right, as well? Yeah, but I'm just trying to address what you just said, though. Uh, we're we're directly reading about a massive garden in the center of the New Jerusalem area yeah. that all the tribes will help cultivate. Okay. Well, I thought you well, what's related thought, to that adding is to what you were saying, sweetie. Food preparation, I'm saying. Yes. So if, we're, if there's going to be huge dining halls and we're growing food, you know, we're going to be preparing that food, serving it to people, clean up after that. Um, there was a question for me on there. Um, I would like to answer that. So uh, it says, question for Lindsay, because of your background in New Age, are things promoted as protection against EM, EMF, for example, Shungite, considered as occult practices? I have a Shungite disc on my phone. Um, no. So in my understanding, That's the whole... just science at one point. Yeah. In my understanding, the whole crystal stone thing, 
really hasn't been a huge aspect of occult ritual um, up until the last hundred years when they've given us this weird new age theosophical religion that they've pushed on us, where now they're encouraging people to use crystals to meditate with and use crystals for what's called crystal resonance therapy. I don't really, even when I was in the new age, there wasn't a whole lot of focus on crystals and stones as far as them um being used beyond saying, oh, this, this stone helps clear your air of this energy, or this stone can be programmed to heal this chakra in the body. I mean, it's all pseudoscience. It's all, in my opinion, made up stuff in the last hundred years. I don't see a whole lot of the use of crystals in serious occult ritual, like in things that we see in the Bible. Um, with the sacrifices that were given, the sexual rituals going on in front of the idols, all of that. So I just want to encourage people that I think the fear of crystals and stones has been generated in us based on this new age religion that really isn't, um, it's not a legitimate religion from ancient times. It's kind of a, an amalgamation of all kinds of religions, little bits and pieces from here and there. And the crystals are just something that have become kind of a fad within it. I had a friend who was doing crystal resonance therapy on me. I didn't notice any kind of a difference. I had crystals under but my mattress. Back in the day or yeah. currently? Yeah, back in the day. Tell, tell the timeline properly. Yeah, before okay. I came okay. to Christ, okay. I'm talking about back when I was a new ager. I would hope I don't need to clarify that. Yeah, but Because well, sure. obviously I don't have crystals under my mattress anymore. But I had them under my mattress because I believed in the juju of it but i never there was never a difference in my life i still struggled with all kinds of things i still was living in sin and rebellion against the father i still had all kinds of you know incorrect beliefs um i still had terrible health i still struggled with addictions so i would encourage people if you do have this aversion to crystals and stones just as objects um just to remember they're all created by the lord the new jerusalem is going to be built of precious stones there were precious stones on the breastplate of the high priest. There are precious stones on our high priest's breastplate as we speak. So they're not a scary thing. Um, and honestly, I think the way that they're used in the new age today is bunk. It's, it's silly. It's for marketing. Practice. It's marketing. It's yeah, it's marketing. It's just getting a way to sell polished stones to people. Um, that's why I don't have any problem going to our spot down in Colorado and digging up beautiful crystals and wrapping them into jewelry. And I've got them sitting around my house because they're beautiful. I like to look at them, but we don't promote them as doing some sort of, yeah, we, I don't have them around to clear the energy in my house or anything like that because they don't do those things. Um, even, even like I said, even in the use and meditation and things like that, I don't think they really hold any real power. I think there's science to prove things like shungite being something that's good for, absorbing EMF radiation. I mean, obviously quartz crystal is used in all kinds of technology. Mm -hmm. um, PZO electricity is something Sean talked about in one of his videos. And uh, yeah, um, let's, yeah go ahead. I'm just yeah. suggesting certain kind of kinds of science, actual science that doesn't have any religious thought involved in it is real. And that's out there. So they use certain types of crystals in making lasers. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> There's different applications that are natural use applications. Some are, you know, but as far as just because you have it, does that mean you're somehow connecting yourself to new age or unclean yeah. spirits? No. no, there's no mysticism. There's nope. no, there's no, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, 
um, superstition yeah. involved in owning a rock that the God God made in the earth mm -hmm. that someone dug up. Does yeah. that make sense? The devil didn't put those rocks in the earth. Yahweh did. <laughs> yeah. And it's not something listed in Leviticus, in, the, in Leviticus, as far as all the things that we're told not to do that the pagan nations are doing right. it. So I am convinced that crystals were not a part of any kind of religious practices really until the new age movement of the last hundred years. And it's, in my opinion, it's not real. There's no real power in them. All right. Good question. So Sonship Identity is asking, under the law is the second death. Under the law is the second death curse. Galatians 4.4 4 says he was born under the law. I don't get it. I don't get your question, brother. I'm sorry. If you want to reword it a little more clear, you have use up the full text limit that you can. Um, let me try to read again. Under the law is the second death curse. He's not understanding what it means when it says Jesus was born under the law. Uh, Is that what Galatians 4, 4 says that Jesus no, was born under the law? I don't understand the first part of this that he says is an actual question. So yeah, just, we're not going to waste time. If we don't understand it, brother, just please try to reword it, make it very clear. Um, same thing for you, Roadcaster. I don't understand your question either. When is the judge with two D's? I don't, I think you got cut off there. Um, oh, here it goes. It's down here. When is the judgment of believers? Is it different from sheep and goats judgment? Well, the judgment, if you're if you're <coughs> considered worthy to take part in the resurrection, as Yeshua talks about, and as we see in First Thessalonians and Revelation, um, that is in itself judgment because you're being judged to participate in eternal life. And then there's treasures in heaven stored up for you, depending upon your life, because you are judged on every word and deed. So if part of those words and deeds where you're trying to be a disciple of Christ and you gave your heart to him and you professed with your mouth and you were faithful unto death and he judges you for the resurrection, that's a judgment. This is also, we, we did a video on this a long time ago. It's our morning uh, cup of context series and it's called um, who gets, who's judged first yeah. is the name of it. Who's judged first. So I talk about how judgment begins with the house of God, like it talks about in the scriptures. And then that's at the first resurrection. And then that happens before all the nations are brought in the Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment. So uh, you're welcome to check out that video. And hopefully my, my abbreviated answers is helpful to you as well. I think that's a great question. All right. So we have other questions up here. I'm, I'm going to it. Thank you, sweetie. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, you start scrolling. I think you're going to go past it. <laughs> the flawless is asking, is it a sin for me, a male to become certified as a midwife? I want to know so I can deliver a baby in the emergency situation. And I want to deliver all my wife's babies. I don't know. I don't think it's a sin for you. I mean, we have doctors that deliver. Um, you had medicine men in the ancient past that would help not just with delivery, but also all sorts of maladies and medicines. I mean, the ancient priests of ancient Israel had to, to look people over with with um, the scabs and investigate the scabs. Now, there's no there's no promise that those scabs were always on a non genital related place. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, I don't think it's a sin for you to, to be certified to deliver babies. No, it's definitely not a sin. I would give you fair warning that it might be very hard for you to find a midwifery school that will accept you, accept you and that will allow you to attend births because a lot of women who are having a midwife come to their birth are definitely not going to be comfortable with a, a strange man they've never met. Yeah. There's something for us women where we are more comfortable with each other. Um, like I can remember when I hit an age where I no longer wanted to have a male gynecologist. I right. just was like, I just, but I'll, I'll have a female gynecologist. I've never met her before shaking her hand for the first time. And then we have this moment where she's checking me out for things. And I'm comfortable with that because she's a woman. There's something 
women are just more comfortable with that. So I would just suggest to be prepared to not really be welcomed into the world completely because I don't know how often you'll be able to actually attend someone's birth, but I think it's valuable information for you to be able to at least go and learn, at least go and learn all about it and what to do in emergency situations and what you're looking for and things like that, especially with helping your wife deliver. So yeah, I would say definitely not a sin, but just be prepared because it is a woman's world uh, of midwifery there. So slapping cheeks, keep the woman away, keep the baby away. (laughs) (laughs) Slapping cheeks. That's all, that's all delivering babies are, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. That must be it. I'm sure. I don't know. know. (laughs) I just try not to pass out when they're on TV. Okay. So Ivan Botha (laughs) is asking when does Shabbat start Friday at sundown or Saturday at sunrise new to this, please help. We teach the scriptures. We believe and teach that the scriptures teach us that a new day starts at the sundown when the nighttime begins. That's the new calendar day, 24 hour day. We're not talking about the language of daytime or nighttime. That's a different concept. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the calendar day. If you're worried about one 24 hour calendar day, Scriptures tell us at nightfall, once it becomes night, that's the start of a new day. Yes, I know there's no sun up yet. That's not that's not the language associated with the calendar day. So we try to we have another video on this. It's called When Does the Day Begin, I believe. Yeah. Um, And that's you're welcome to check that out. It's part of our milk and meat playlist here on the channel. Uh, When does the day begin? And uh, we do a whole breakdown with lots of scriptures. And I even do a little chart of calculating according to feast days and how they start and um, so yeah, we, we teach it's uh, the Bible. We, we try to show people that we believe the Bible clearly teaches the new 24 hour calendar day begins after sundown. When the nighttime comes, the new day starts um, little shredder dude. I don't think we have a specific teaching on that. Now we did do our tour portions multiple years and I believe we went through Leviticus and in, in those, those concepts. So both Lindsay and I's kingdom portions that you can see in the playlists on our, on our, um, playlist here on the channel, as well as a tour portions that I did by myself um, for about a year. You're welcome to check out those. And I'm pretty sure we go over those chapters that talk about it, but I'm, I haven't done like a special video on it. Yeah. I apologize. All right. Common Sense Common Sense University doesn't give a degree is asking, can you learn martial arts while being a Christian? I'm concerned because I just found out that yoga is bad. Now totally can be open up you to spirits. So when we see in the Bible, that David is fighting literally to the point of exhaustion. And then his men have to come and protect him because he's been killing giants all day and killing other Philistines all day. What do you think he was doing? That is martial arts, martial arts, like the understanding of how to do combat. That's that's martial arts. Yeah, I would say yoga is not martial arts. Yoga is different. Yoga is an just, actual religious practice. Yeah. So from Hinduism. Yeah. And that's a, a stretching religious practice that is very, very intentional for different things. But um, the actual concept of learning to defend yourself or learning how the body works in combats and all the different physics involved. No, I don't think it's bad at all. I mean, we're literally told in Exodus that uh, Yahweh is a man of war when he comes back and Yeshua comes back to do battle with angels. He leads the way he is like this. This means he's going to get in some scurfs, some scuffs there in Isaiah 63. It talks about him having his robe splattered with blood. So he knows how to move. He knows how to defend himself. He knows how to take life. This is not uh, an easy concept, but in the same way, like at, at the base of Mount Sinai, the Levites had to take 
do judgment on the 3000 people. Mm -hmm. You think they all just sat there and took it? Or you think some of them try to fight back? We don't know. It's a little speculation, but we do see lots and lots of examples in scripture of righteous men of God who had to go do battle. Abraham does it in Genesis 14. J Jacob does it in the book of Jubilees, chapter 37. He has to fight off Canaanite kings. He and his boys do it. Clearly, Simeon and Levi. Levi literally becomes the priest. He has to. He goes and, and does warfare against, you know what I'm saying? So like martial arts, um, as it's practiced and commercialized on the mainstream, is not the same as the ancient art of like being an assassin, like a samurai or somebody yeah. or like a ninja from ancient in, from ancient Japan. And it's not intended to be a use for a vassal of a king for warfare, whether, and you just got to submit yourself, like sign, sign up for the military. You just got to sell your body to the U S military and they can tell you to go kill people. Right. So it's a little bit different as opposed to just knowing how to defend yourself, your family, your loved ones, or be situa situationally aware in circumstances that may go bad. Um, it's very different. And it's also not used in worship to false gods, right? I mean, I know now, some... they're going to always try to claim that, oh yes, it is because look, these, the Eastern people had uh, created martial arts. And I'm like, again, Genesis 14, it's a couple hundred years after the flood. Abraham is doing warfare. That's martial arts guys. This is, yeah. this is knowing how to swing a sword, block a sword. That's martial arts. It's not just the Hollywoodized version where they say, oh, the man from the East is very mysterious and he's going to teach you to wax on and wax off. Not like, no, it's not. That's just commercialized modern cinema. Yeah. Like that's nothing in the reality of ancient history. Like all cultures and all nations teach their young men and women how to defend yourself, yeah. your home, your village from raiders, marauders, oppressive empires that want to come in and defeat you. Like this was a huge deal. You know what I'm saying? Shepherd boy had to learn how to handle himself with bears and lions trying to attack the sheep. He then translated that to killing Goliath. That's a martial art. The same yeah. way you can learn to swing the nunchakas, you can learn to swing that that Egyptian style uh, whip and yeah, throw a rock at skill. somebody. Like this, this is all martial arts, guys. Yeah. So yeah, and it's not something you just wake up one day and know how to do. Like you have to practice these things. Do. Now, just to contrast for you, yoga absolutely is something that was used in worship to false gods, and most yoga poses are poses of worship to certain Hindu gods. So it's a completely different, I would never compare yoga to martial arts because it's not, martial arts is fighting styles and knowing how to defend yourself. Yoga is a religious practice from Hinduism that has been commercialized and Americanized into, you know, a, a, a stretching class with hot steam, you know, like it's, it's not anything close to martial arts. So yeah. stay, still stay away from the yoga. <laughs> but we don't see a problem with martial arts. Um, Kurt is asking, what are the best resources you can recommend for understanding the big picture of canon? Um, I don't know if there's the best resources um, that I specifically know. If you got to do your research in general, because you're going to see different opinions. You're going to see people like you. It, there's a debate I did with David Wilbur on the book of first Enoch. And he tried to claim, well, the, the canon was closed in the first century AD by the rabbis. And I'm sitting there going, bro, think about what you're saying. Yeah. Like the dudes that rejected Christ, of course, they're going to reject books that mm -hmm. prophesy Christ books like first Enoch. And they don't want that to be a part of their canon. So of course they're going to leave that out. So if, if you just go and research Judaism and what they consider to be scripture, you're going to get a biased opinion. Yeah. If you go and just, you know, you have to, you have to contrast and actually do some research and look at different people. Uh, we try to address a lot of this on our Honor of Kings series. 
as we in different episodes, we go through the history of the books and do commentary and show, you know, with quotes and different citations and on, you know, which which things had, you know, like I. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a specific resource, like a specific video that's been done. Uh, we've we've talked about it in mass throughout our Honor of King series here on the channel, um, as well as um, you will find different opinions. So I highly encourage to be patient with it. Study out the, the different looks. We did the video on uh, with Rachel Eliar on my page. It's yeah. it's still in my old video playlist from two or three years ago um, where you can. We, she talks about why the rabbis in the first century excluded the book of first Enoch Jubilees and the Testament of the 12 uh, tribes, which is Testament of 12 patriarchs. So, because I mean, she, she doesn't talk about why she talks about how it was, those were excluded and she's baffled. Why? Yeah. <laughs> I can tell you why, because they prophesied Christ uh, and they were already, and I already showed those other videos where they were moving stuff from Isaiah and Jeremiah that prophesied Christ. But um, so anyway, you just have to do your research. There's a lot to it, but we try to, we try to address it in those videos in the past. If that, if that maybe is a furthering resource for you. Uh, Brandon0069 is asking, are we instructed in the Bible to pray to Yeshua or to the Father? To the Father. Yeshua tells us to pray to the Father. Um, John Jan is asking, I have a question regarding a passage from the Septuagint regarding Jeremiah 38.8. Do you think the prophecies a Passover return? Yes, we do. Yes. We've talked about this in the, in the past. Um, it, it's not, we're not claiming that it's he's coming back on Passover, um, but we're claiming that that's the season. That's the season that we're gathered to celebrate Passover in the kingdom. And that's what we believe. Matthew 22, wedding supper of the lamb is an actual Passover meal. So what's good? What's key to on YouTube? If I knew I'd be successful. <laughs> yeah. Just find something that they, the algorithms like. Hard for his glory. How would you respond to someone who says Yahweh is outside of time? I would say, do you know your Bible? For one, he can be outside of time. He created the world and the time clock that the world uses to, to mark time, which is the sun, moon, and stars. So we understand that he's already outside of time. But the reason why I said my first response to them would be, do you know our Bible is because I don't want to fall into a philosophical argument with someone. I want to make sure the person that I'm talking to actually knows the Bible before they start trying to explain the Bible through philosophy. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm giving you a little bit of tongue and cheek answer, but this is the first I've heard this argument so much from Trinitarians, and they think because God is outside of time that he can do whatever he wants and that he doesn't have to obey his own rules, which he prophesied for his son. And so therefore he can do whatever he wants and it doesn't matter. And I would say we already have verses Isaiah 46, 10. You know, he is he's the ancient one who knows the end from the beginning. He understands what's going to happen. He, we, we get that he's, he's smarter than us. He's holier than us. He's wonderful. He's our creator. We, you know, we get that he is more capable than the creation that he decided to live within. We understand that. But at the same time, I just would, I would just caution anyone about getting caught up in these, these uh, long discourses on philosophy, especially on things that can never be actually uh, proven right now without asking the father, right. It's without things that you just have to speculate on. So um, I would say as a small, short question, yes. And the general premise, um, careful not to get pulled into these long-standing discussions that can never truly be validated one way or another and just make sure and encourage others learn your actual bible that's important and i would also say send them last the last 42 episode which i just put into the chat because sean goes all into the topic of time and uh why it does matter to understand that we're in the whole 
creation as a big giant timepiece, and the father does things according to time. He has appointed times. So even if he's outside of it somehow, he still operates within the time that he created for us. So in the same way, he told us what his son, who his son is and what he was going to do when he came. Mm -hmm. And he fulfills that. And the son fulfills that. They do what they're going to, yep. they do what they say. They don't just supersede it because they're quote unquote God. They do what they say. Um, the coming day, what age will people be inside the kingdom? Um, they'll be eternal. So if they want to continue to track their age, at, you know, with the revolution of the sun as years, you're welcome to do that once you're resurrected. I don't see any prohibition against that, but you're also going to be eternal. So um, your body will be perfected, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Yeshua, uh, the apostles got to see that in Yeshua when he was resurrected. So, but, you know, we don't get a great description of what that actually looked like, what age he looked like or anything like that. So unfortunately, it doesn't really define it explicitly. I don't think you're going to look like a child. I, I'm guessing if I were to go off a scriptural precedent, you're going to look like a fully grown man like Adam and Eve would in the garden. You're going to look like a fully grown person. You're going to be after done with your growing phases and in your, your prime phase. Hopefully late 20s <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, me personally, you know, the idea of not working on the Sabbath for a vocation um, is about profiting making income because you're trusting the father on that one day of the month of the, of the week um, doing homework. It's it's it borders a gray area, but I personally would not do it. I would just try to make, try to get it done before, just like you get all your other chores done before the Sabbath. I would encourage people to try to finish all their homework before the Sabbath so they can have a sense of rest in their mind and just be at peace to enjoy learning about the father, fellowshipping with others and in, in reverence to the father or just resting your body. So I would encourage not doing homework on the Sabbath, but there's no ex explicit prohibition yeah. against it. I mean, if and you're, not you're on a time for, crunch and yeah. you have to get something done by Sunday morning or you're going to fail, you know, it is what it is. But if that homework, if you're calling homework something that your job gave you to do, then I would yeah. say, then no, 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 that's not it. But schooling is a little different. You're not getting profit for going to school. Um, what are your thoughts on Matthew 16, 28? Um, I think we've actually addressed this a few times. Um, I, I got to be honest, guys, I struggle answering these vague questions. Praise God, no offense, but uh, it's just so vague. You know, it's like, what are my thoughts in general? Um, I would like to, uh, no, we, we did oh. review this. I mean, this is a, yeah. the, the quick answer is he's talking about the second death uh, because at the resurrection, they don't, they don't face the second death. They get resurrected and they see him coming down. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, it talks about we meet him in the air at his coming. We're rising up. He's coming down. But uh, I don't know if we high five on the way. I don't know what happens, but we go up to be hidden away in our rooms in the New Jerusalem while he comes down with angels to fight the day of the Lord at Armageddon and other places. So um, that's the second death is what I was what I've always taught as being inferred here to understand that they will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Um, Jane Frisk is asking, did Isaac ever meet Laban or did he send Jacob to him to get a wife on Rebecca's testimony of her family? Did Isaac ever meet Laban? Did Isaac ever meet Laban or did he send Jacob to him to get a wife? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think it ever tells us in Jubilees or Genesis if Isaac traveled to meet Laban. Yeah, they knew I mean, they were they family. They were family. Yeah. They knew like, they were of the same clan or whatever. Yeah. So, so. I mean, maybe... I'd have to go back through Isaac's life when he was with Abraham as his son yeah. and what travels they may have done that may have put them in the region of Laban. 
they clearly knew who they were. Yeah, I mean, because Laban rejoiced when he figured out who who the Eliezer or excuse me, who Jacob was. Right. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, there's all kinds of things that have happened in these people's lives that aren't recorded for us in the scriptures. Yeah. So we can assume it might be likely that they met at some point, yeah. you know, in their lives before um, Jacob, you know, went out to work for Laban. So, yeah, we don't really know. All right. Rich is asking, are women supposed to teach in the church? Uh, like we talked about in a previous video, I think we did a whole video in the, or a little clip anyway, called uh, Should Women Be Pastors? But um, yes, you can teach in the church other women. You're, we don't teach that a woman is supposed to be put in a position of authority or leadership over the other men. Yeah. And she's definitely not supposed to be the head pastor. But if she wants to be in a pastoral role where she's teaching other women, um, that's it, that's Titus chapter one. Yeah, I mean, and Paul, children's and, ministry. And children as yeah. well. Like, Paul explains this um, in Titus. So, yeah, we don't see any problem with that. Like we talked about earlier, you see the idea of a prophetess, a woman that knew the law of God and was able to teach other people that law of God. Uh, we see people like Anna in Luke chapter 2 at the temple all the time. So if women were to come to the temple with an issue, well, they can go talk to one of the men or they can go talk to one of the prophetesses like Anna and get some involvement as well. Sure. Yeah. But prophetesses... Women were never to be made priests who were the eldering rulers. Yeah, so, they had the authority, the priests. Right. So in that regard, we would transpose that into the church scenario where uh, we would not teach that a woman would be the ultimate head pastor or leader over all of the other men. And in our own dynamic, I think it's kind of obvious how we both feel um, where Sean has me on to teach with him because I'm studied and approved according to him. And he's the one leading anyways. So if I'm not sure about something, I will always defer to him. Um, I believe in covering my hair when I'm on teaching you guys. And I don't believe in coming on here and teaching by myself. I may have a video once in a while sharing a testimony of something, but I don't believe in like having my own separate special show to even just talking about women's issues. But I mean, that's also kind of because I'm not really... <laughs> I'm not really made for this. <laughs> That's why I just told him the other day that I save it all up for this one day a week. And then after that, because he's always inviting me on to other shows. I'm like, nah, I'm good just doing it on Shabbat with you. <laughs> so that might just be more my personality. But you want this one? Sure. Robert Daniels is asking, are frequencies in the same boat as crystals? I would say yes. This is another thing that it's just a scientific thing. It's something anyone like cymatics is a really interesting science of sound and how you can see sound waves. Uh, certain harmonic frequencies will create whole beautiful geometric designs in whatever kind of medium you're putting over a speaker. Um, and that's just plain science and experimentation that you can look into and see for yourself. Um, again, this is something that I don't see. Um, I mean, I know that there's a lot of talk of how frequencies were used in ancient times, and I don't know any way to verify any of that stuff. As far as frequencies being used in serious occult ritual, again, that's not something I'm, I've really seen a whole lot of. It's more of this fad within the new age to call things sound healing and stuff like that. Now, I do think there's some science behind certain frequencies have having positive effects on the body and DNA. Um, I, for a long time made soap and I was using, um, what's called solfeggio frequencies. These are different harmonic frequencies on a scale known as the solfeggio scale. 
and I would put my wet soap because it's a liquid that has to harden over around 24 hours. I would set that on top of a speaker and I would play usually a 528 hertz frequency, which is called the frequency of love. I, again, I don't know how to verify that, but I know that it's the frequency of creation, like every blade of grass vibrates at 528 hertz. And I mean, I thought it must be doing something magical to the molecules in my soap because I was all into what the bleep do we know and the water experience, uh, water experiments from uh, Emoto, the Japanese scientist. Um, but what ended up happening with my soap, actually, I do think it positively, positively affected the soap in a way that made the scent last longer. So anyone out there who makes soap and tries to keep things organic and natural probably knows that they don't like to use um, chemical fragrances in their soaps. Typically, it's chemical fragrances that are used in bar soap because they last longer. I'm sorry, this is very interesting. People might like to know this. Chemical fragrances will last long. They don't fade away. If you use essential oils in your soap, those scents don't last as long because soap is a process of taking fat and mixing it with lye. And what happens is a process called saponification, where the fat and the lye actually transmute basically into a completely new um, product known as soap. But what happens is the fat that you use in that soap is eventually all turned into the soap. So an essential oil is a fat. So over time, the essential oils will saponify within the soap and the scent eventually goes away. So I would always see people in soaping groups complaining about how their essential oil scents won't last very long in their soaps, maybe a few months at most, and how they don't want to have to use, you know, fake fragrances, but they seem to last. Well, something about putting the soap on the the solfeggio tones and letting it sit and harden that way, my scent on my soaps would last years. So <laughs> I can't explain it from a scientific standpoint. It's just something I did for fun back in the day because I thought it was like cleansing of my chakras or something. But there was something there was something that actually happened to the soap because of the frequencies and it made my product better better quality and last longer. So I'm just using that as an example of frequencies not being this, again, not this scary thing and something that all kinds of witches all around the world are just harnessing frequencies for their magic. I don't, I never saw any of that really. Um, I would put them in the same category as crystals where it's kind of been used as a fad term in the new age, but it's not something that's actually evil, wrong, or dangerous. <clears throat> Thank you, sweetie. Sure. I tried some of your soap. You had some leftover yes. when we first met because yeah, you did. weren't really making it anymore. I wasn't, yeah. And so it was good. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. All right. Kara is asking, Kara Schmoot is asking, as the high priest and not the father, how do we, how or do we worship Yeshua? So there's two words for worship in scripture. One of them is called temple worship, and that's what the priests do. Yeshua is our high priest, so he does this to the father. He brings forward the holy gifts and creates propitiatory meals before the father or fellowship meals or peace meals or Thanksgiving or vow to whatever reason that they're brought forward. Um, that's an ongoing process of temple worship. And we're only to do that to Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth, the father, the almighty. Yeshua, the other definition of worship in scripture is bowing down in respect. So we see that men can do that to both angels, can do that to Yeshua, can do that to the almighty if they ever saw him, but they don't. So the point is, this is the idea of bowing down to an authority over you would be something that the Greek 
term is referred to and loosely translated into English as worship. It's a Greek term called obeisance. It's basically just you, you either bow on two knees or one knee or you lay prostrate on the floor. You know, like we see in number 16, when uh, Korah challenges Moses and Aaron's authority, Moses immediately lays prostrate before the angel of the Lord who represented the power of Yahweh and was was like, oh, don't do this, gentlemen, don't yeah. do this. And he's probably just ducking from the fire that was about to come right. out. So like, ultimately that's a form of worship as in respect. It's not this, you know, we've got to define our terms. Um, and this is where we're always trying to encourage folks that words like God and worship actually have definitions to them that are given to us in scripture. And they're used in different ways according to different contexts. So in the context of having a temple and our high priest Yeshua going in, providing the holy gifts to the father, preparing those according to the law of God, that's temple worship to Yahweh. In the context of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords when he returns to the earth, that's another form of worship to, to Yeshua in a respect like you're worshiping a king. You're respecting that king. It's not We do not offer holy gifts or sacrifices to Yeshua. So that's uh, hopefully a quick short answer for you. We'll take just maybe one or two more. Yeah, we'll bow to him. We won't sacrifice to him. We'll sacrifice to the Father. Yeah. Uh, jewel of denial. Um, Bible doesn't teach burning in hell forever. That's the Catholic convention. And, um, it teaches your soul and body being destroyed in the lake of fire. That means you're out of the game. No more for you. No more existence. Both are destroyed. There's no perpetual eternal life of burning and perpetual torment. Yeah. Um, the smoke that rises represents that the, the destruction is complete and that quote unquote rises forever because the lake of fire never is extinguished. Yeah. But the the actual things that are thrown in the lake of fire, there it's a it's an eraser. You're taken out of the video game forever. Your your character avatar is removed forever. No more interaction, no more gameplay for you. And as a scriptural reference, Yeshua teaches us this in Matthew 10, 28, where he talks about the body and the soul being destroyed in Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. Some of the English translations will loosely and poorly translate it as the word hell. But look up the Greek. It's the word for Gehenna, the lake of fire. All right, guys. Um, all right. Last last question. This is a crazy fun one. Mahaz, or excuse me, Mayaz Edits is asking, when will Leviathan and Behemoth be killed? How long will the survivors be eating? Uh, they'll be killed on the day of the Lord, approximately within that week. And um, to my understanding, they'll be killed by the angels. And then they'll be prepared appropriately. And then all the survivors that are coming to uh, the, the new Jerusalem over the next several months will be eating of it once they get there. So I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know how they're going to preserve it, but that's the general premise is that they're created for the purpose for food. They're killed once the Messiah returns uh, by his angels that return with him, not the church, not the resurrected saints, by the angels that are destined for this job. And then they're prepared properly, um, slaughtered properly, and then served as little morsels. Get some little morsels at the new Jerusalem. <laughs> So hopefully that's a decent answer for you. We've done shows in the past. I check. I highly encourage you to go and check out our <clears throat> Honor of Kings playlist for season two. We do a whole show on Leviathan Behemoth, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, um, yeah. Anything you'd like to say before we go? Uh, just want to remind everyone who wasn't here at the beginning um, that we do have a widow in need. We have a fundraiser down in the description below. Um, she came home two or three days ago and found her husband unresponsive, not breathing. Um, and he did pass away that day. So we have that up. Um, also, if you missed the beginning, please go back and watch the beginning. Cause we clarified our, 
our heart and our purpose for these particular shows that we do on Sabbath and what kind of conduct we would hope to see in the chat based on that kind of environment we're trying to set just so that you guys can have the proper expectations and understand our expectations. Um, and that's pretty much it. We appreciate you guys being here. Um, if you didn't get your question answered, please don't take it personally. It's just humanly impossible for us to answer every single question that pops up here and just come back next week, ask it again, and we'll do what we can to try and get to them. So other than that, um, just appreciate all you guys pray for you every morning. And, um, yeah, it's just, a as, as shy and as uncomfortable as I can be about being on camera and doing the YouTube thing. Um, it's been a great blessing and I do thank the father every morning for my huge scattered family that I have. Cause I've got some odd family dynamics <laughs> with a lot of my family members that have been very painful and um, it certainly helps to have all kinds of people scattered around the world who I consider um, my family through faith. That's right. So. Yeah. We've got, we get all in ignoring all the, the hateful messages we get, yeah. we get a lot of loving, <laughs> encouraging messages from people uh, both in letters, both in comments on socials and our videos. And so you guys are super appreciated. We love you. We appreciate that. Uh, we, we hope that, you know, if not in this life in the kingdom, we all get to hang out in the same place and have a good time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we just, you know, we don't personally feel called to, to actually be pastors of an actual building in a mm -hmm. local congregation. That's why, you know, we've got many different um, things that we have our hands involved in right now um, that we've talked about in different ways. And so um, that we, we just don't, there's a whole responsibility and a whole different life involved yeah. and a different calling in our understanding. There's a different calling for people that are called to be mm -hmm. pastors of an actual congregation. Yeah. I do not and have not ever felt called for that specifically. I feel called to be a teacher and I try to be a most effective and, and far reaching teacher as possible, which is why we're utilizing the tools that we are to do that. Yeah. So, um, but we still love and appreciate you guys and all the interaction we can do with you, even if it is digitally at the time. And so you guys are a blessing to us. Yeah. You really are. Oh, uh, Tobit, Tobit's out. It's it's on uh, oh. Patreon. Thank you guys, all of our patrons. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you guys for the super chat today. Uh, we just dropped Tobit. We're about to drop First and Second Timothy as well, and um, and more books that are even coming. Mark, Revelation, other books that are almost completed as well. And so uh, that's that's Tobit's already out and ready. And if you haven't been notified because you haven't downloaded the Kingdom of Context app, which is here, you should download for free. It's in the video description below, Google Play or Apple Store. Um, it's free to get, and I'll you'll be announced and it'll be updated to you when we drop new books for the study guide. And in the future, we're actually going to upload the entire study guide on the app yeah. so you can access it at all times for free. And so download the, download the app. Have you, why haven't you done it that yet? I don't understand. <laughs> we should have, we should have 21,000 people that have downloaded the app. I, I don't get it. So you guys are a blessing. We appreciate you. I hope you have a good Sabbath and we hope to see you back here next week. Yeah. Shabbat shalom guys. Shabbat have shalom. a great week. See you next time.